This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. As India extends its lockdown, as the world suffers and heals, we hope you are keeping yourself safe and also taking care of people and things, whatever best you can do. Hi guys, I'm Suchita and we hope to reach out to as many people as possible in these stressful times. You can reach out to us anytime for any help, any advice, any guidance. You can also reach out to any of our guests, whatever best suits your needs. With this episode, we are extending our conversation on depression, a word that we so loosely use. You can also check out our earlier episodes on depression, which is on our website. But with COVID-19, there could be more triggers of depression. Hence, we thought we could get another guest who can share his lived-in experience with depression, Tanmay Goswami. Tanmay is a journalist and a mental health advocate. He is the sanity correspondent at The Correspondent, a role in which he writes about the personal, social and political underpinnings of mental health for an audience spread across 140 countries. In his earlier avatar as a business journalist, he was a recipient of IE Business School Asian Journalism Prize. Tanmoy has lived with depression and anxiety for close to two decades and is a vocal advocate for improving mental health literacy in our families and communities and in our mass media. Hi Tanmoy, welcome to the SOS show. Hi Sujita, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? As good as I can be in the circumstances. I hope that's the same for you as well. Yes, you know, actually, we were talking about this yesterday, so I thought I'll start the conversation from there. So I have been sort of feeling uh, depressed, and especially with all this COVID going and not being able to get off the bed, uh, not wanting to do much stuff. So I'm just trying to understand that am I the same depressed that perhaps you are? Yeah, I'll give you the answer that I gave you yesterday. I dare <laughs> not reply to that question directly uh, because I'm not an expert. And I think before we start, before we, uh, you know, have a detailed conversation on anything, I should put out this disclaimer loud and clear. I'm not an expert. I'm going to speak from my personal experience. Please don't treat this as any kind of medical advice. So, um, you know, Suchita, uh, this is something that I think uh, is consuming me every day now because I get so hmm. many calls and messages from friends um strangers even on twitter saying you know we're feeling out of control um can't get anything done am i depressed um is this something that i should consult a doctor for and what i always tell them is that you know um sadness or existential sort of fatigue at a time like this is extremely natural of course we're going through something that nobody has been trained for right this is this is a black yeah. swan event and so, you know, if you feel like suddenly a sledgehammer has been thrown in your direction, that's perfectly valid. Um, whether this is a, um, whether what you're feeling is clinically depression, that is something that only an expert can answer. But there are, there are a few signs uh, that, that differentiate regular routine sadness from quote-unquote depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, for instance, in my case, it was the complete inability to get even the basic functions that a human being needs to perform on a daily basis, um, brushing your teeth, getting out of bed, making tea, eating, uh, picking up the phone, saying hello, opening the door, taking the trash out, everything will uh, appear like a mountain um, to cross. Um, and if this state continues for a, for a long period of time, and, and you, you know these are subjective calls, 
that you have to take. But if if this complete inability to function and this general feeling of you know uh, dread or fatigue, different people experience it differently continues for a long enough period of time, then you should definitely see an expert. That's not to say you should not pick up the phone and call a helpline even if you're feeling a little sad or upset or edgy right now. Um, so that's the other thing about depression. You, you shouldn't have to wait for it to become a clinical condition before you seek help. So even if you're feeling a little bit blue right now um, and you feel like you need to talk to somebody, there are plenty of resources on the net. I, I keep tweeting about them please feel free to call one of those helplines and talk to an expert. Uh, don't wait for it to become something uh, unmanageable and big. Sure. And Tanmay, tell me, this feeling of a mountain that comes with depression, do you yeah. think that's something that is done by the brain or do you think that's a genetic thing? Again, I wish I could answer that question. I think... Millions... Yeah, did, you, did you try to find about... I'm, I'm sure you would have analyzed your own self. Yeah, I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent in, uh, you know, uh, research labs around the world to answer that question. Um, unfortunately, you know, psychiatry is an inexact science. Um, it, it's still very young, very new. It's still finding its bearings and there are there is a there is a lot of polarization within the psychiatric community about what exactly causes this feeling mm, um, yeah. and all that i am able to fathom after many years of research is that it seems to be a very bewildering uh, you know sort of combination of a lot of things so the biomedical model of the west which is to say chemical locha in your brain um, that is uh, something that is peddled very aggressively um, in some Western societies by, uh, you know, primarily because the pharma industry gives it a big push. Um, and then, of course, but there are huge cultural variances, you know, in the experience of depression. So, for instance, there is research that has been done by um, uh, professors at SCARF, the Schizophrenia Awareness Research Foundation. Yeah, in Chennai. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they found that, you know, the experience of even a serious mental disorder like uh, schizophrenia, for instance, in... in um, non-Western contexts can be a lot, uh, can be very different, quote unquote, a lot more benign even than it is perceived in the West. So um, uh, uh, culture plays a huge role, social context plays a huge role, support mechanisms around you play a huge role in how you experience it. Um, and what causes it, it is anybody's guess. I think it's a combination of very complex, uh, you know, algorithms running in our neurotransmitters, uh, your personal, uh, you know, you could have n number of triggers um, because of your personal circumstances. So it's really a mysterious, uh, 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 you know, area of the human mind. Um, and that's what makes it so frustrating because, you know, um, I often feel, uh, you know, when I, when I was at absolutely at the uh, pits with depression, in the pits with depression, I used to often wonder if somebody could just tell me why I am feeling this way maybe I would feel a little better. But that answer is really difficult to get. So when you actually started, when you discovered this, uh, at what point were you in your life? And what was the first thing that you did? Did you discuss it with your family? What, how were your relationships around you that you could actually go to and talk? Uh, you know, uh, even as a child growing up, I was a melancholic kind of person. Um, I used to be fairly gregarious, um, you know, in social situations, but... Um, I always had a certain sort of, uh, I always felt like I was weighed down by too many things. Um, 
and i think it was uh, in 2001 2002 um, when i when i left my small town home in west bengal and i came to delhi to study um, and i i went to a college uh, you know where the uh, most elite kids of delhi were studying and it was a huge culture shock um and a lot of my understanding of the world was completely uh, destroyed i mean you know when you grow up in a small town you 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 brought up to believe in a certain black and white sense of morality yeah and uh, then you come to a place like delhi and you know a lot of those preconceptions so um i think something about that experience gave it a gave my sort of mind a big jolt and i started feeling extremely sort of uh, um you know pointless about life although i was very excited to be where i was but i always felt um you know that there was a sense of futility and i think it was when and again trigger warning i'm going to talk about some stuff uh, related to uh, you know some unsavory experiences self mm-hmm. uh, harming and things like that please uh, you know sure. um uh, this is just a disclaimer for whoever listens so it was it was in uh, 2001 2002 around that time when i started hurting myself physically mm-hmm. that i realized that this is getting a little out of hand um and actually a friend of mine dragged me to the college therapist um back then it was uh, you know uh, the university had mandated i think that every college needs to have an in-house counselor um and i was very very fortunate that um we had an absolutely a genius uh, therapist in our college dr anurag mishra he was he still practices in delhi and so he was the person that i first went and sort of sought help from when i was 18 or 19 years old so if your friend wouldn't have pushed you you perhaps would not have gone i wouldn't have I gone expect, i wouldn't hmm. have gone Mm-hmm. So you spoke to your friend about your feelings. I mean, I think they observed something in my behavior okay. because um, that's the time when I started sort of physically looking very different. I started growing a you know long scraggy beard. I started you know getting this really sort of unwashed, unkempt look. I wouldn't talk to people too much. I would just be withdrawn, and I was constantly sort of very very high strung. I would start crying for at no provocation at all. um mm-hmm. and then i was of course uh, hurting myself uh, so those marks were visible on my body oh my god so you didn't discuss this with your parents of course no i know i didn't discuss it with my parents i that time uh, there a there was thankfully there was no mobile phone there was no whatsapp in a way um uh, that kind of gave me some space to deal with it in my own way mm-hmm. uh, my mother uh, at that time used uh, used to work as a nurse so she was i think now in hindsight i feel like you know she, she would have been conversant and able to help me uh, maybe mm-hmm. if i talked to her but you know it was just so far beyond um even my vocabulary to articulate that i have something like depression i didn't even know that I mean, for me depression was just a weather condition you know like mm. i i never really thought that depression could actually be a physical health condition yes and of course how loosely we use the word depression absolutely absolutely so um it's almost cool to say one is a little depressed you know it's, yes so so yeah it it never occurred to me to talk to my parents um it was pretty much me a couple of my friends very close friends and a lot of my friends actually at that time very hastily exited from my life as well um because i was obviously behaving quote unquote weirdly um and i was not uh, good company and so a lot of my close friends from the first and second year they just disappeared from my life by the time i was finishing second year entering third year 
and um, what made it even more uh, difficult for me was that I, even then I was a high functioning depressive. So it, it was difficult for an outsider to discern that there was something something going on with me, something was wrong with me because I was a, a very good student. I used to get good grades. I was part, very active in college societies and clubs. Um, and uh, so by uh, by my appearance, you couldn't tell. Um, unless you really spent a lot of time with me, you couldn't tell that I, there was something going on with me. So that made things a little more difficult. And it was only when Dr. Mishra said after a few meetings that, you know, I had depression and that he was about to prescribe a pill, maybe. Um, that's when I got really scared. Um, that's when I felt like I'm going mad. That's That's when the word mad sort of entered my consciousness. And I thought, okay, this is like now next thing I'm going to be admitted in a hospital they're going to tie me up to a bed and give me electric shocks uh, <laughs> so uh, i was absolutely you know hapless right i was a young kid yes um, yes and my relationships my friendships were all getting blown apart but at yes. the same time a couple of those friends who helped me at that time um, they remain my friends for life so that sort of answers the question about relationships i think at that point sure Sure. So you went, you went on medication. Uh, I didn't go on medication then. No, he, he, uh, I just stopped actually after he said this, um, I stopped going to him. I think I just got so scared, um, at the prospect of, because I knew that if I took, uh, started taking pills, I'd have to tell my mother and then, you know, the shit would hit the roof at home. And um, I was just sort of basking in my newfound independence after spending 17, 18 years cooped up in a small town in Bengal. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't want to give that up. So sure. So, so, so Tanmay, at what point did you realize that you need medication? Do you, do you take medication for it now? Oh, Still? yes. I, I have been okay. on medication, regular medication, daily medication for the past, I think, four years now, three and a half, four years. Um so there was a very long gap between 2001 and I think about 2011-12, uh, I'd say about a 10-year gap, when I just quietly suffered. I just, you know, like many, many people do, I just sort of rubbished it as just sort of like, quote-unquote, normal, you know, like, okay, these are just, you know, the struggles that any growing person, a person in the process of growing up would encounter. And I don't want to like, um, glamorize it in my own head saying oh I have a special condition so 10 years I didn't do anything but on the on the medicine front per se but I I went on a wild adventure when it comes to like alternative healing I did I tried you name it I've tried it from Reiki to aromatherapy to past life regression to like I have I'm a I'm trained in Reiki myself and I've done everything because I was just so scared of taking pills. So, 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 so those 10 years of gap where you were quietly suffering, but you were also trying alternative ways to heal your own self, Reiki and everything else. At what point did you think that there was the medication needed to come in your life? What happened? Yeah. 2013, 2014 is when I started feeling that now I think this is going um, a little out of my control and none of these things helping much. Um, but I really became serious about fixing myself and doing whatever it takes um, when we were about to become parents. Um, you know, okay. uh, hmm. that's when. Yes. So we were expecting. Uh, this is about three years ago. We were expecting, and uh, 
I just felt like, you know, I have been on this sort of uh, goose chase for a long time. It hasn't really helped. I need to accept that I have tried my best, but it hasn't helped. And I now need to. But once again, it was somebody in my family who really sort of uh, dragged me to the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. A very, very, mm-hmm. very good doctor, very good you know, doctor. in Sitaram Bhartiya Hospital. And I went to him and I, I just sort of surrendered myself uh, to Dr. Sareen. And I said, and the good thing is Dr. Sareen, I mean, my doctor was one of those, you know, uh, doctors who is not over enthusiastic about medication. Hmm. Yes, I know. Yeah. So, you know, he was, um, he gave me uh, measured dose, doses and it's always with medication, it's always sort of, you know, trial and error. It takes a while for you to find your perfect drug. So that continued for some time. And I think that still continues. I'm still on pills. I'm seeing different doctor now, but I am um, completely at peace now with my with my medicine regime. Tanmay, you were suffering from these symptoms for 10 years. The same symptoms were continuing for those years before you actually took the step of uh, getting a regular dosage of medicine. Uh, when you discover that you're going to be a father, the same symptoms or the symptoms varied in these 10 years? Yeah, they, I, I, they, they did vary. I think uh, the intensity kind of waxed and waned a little bit. Uh, there would be months when I'd be, when I'd be seemingly fine. And then suddenly okay. one day Sorry. something would happen, something would push me off the edge and I would be in this sort of all-consuming sort of void for months. Um, and um, I became very paranoid about contracting. I remember that that was one of the things that uh, kept me preoccupied for at least half of those 10 years. I was just, I became like a complete hypochondriac. And this is something that I discussed with my, um, you know, Reiki teacher as well at that time, I remember. Because I, I used to feel like I'm just going to contract an infection or I'm going to have like a tumor somewhere in my body and I'm just going to die. And this fear continued for, uh, you know, I think five or six of those 10 years. Um, so the symptoms and the, the experience of illness really fluctuated. Um, but I, I could tell that there wasn't, it, it hadn't gone away. There was something that was still very wrong with me. And tell uh, me when you decided to get married, at any point did you mention about this to your wife, uh, um, how did you tell her? What did you tell her? How should a person with any form of mental uh, illness like depression or bipolar talk to their partners? Yeah, you know, this is a very, very, uh, very difficult question to answer because, of course, um, each relationship, each family, each context is so different. In my case, to be honest, it's not like I sat her down and I, you know, sort of broke it to her like, hey, listen, I have this condition. Um, yes. Um, it wasn't like that, but I think over a period of time, um, through multiple conversations, it was, uh, you know, plentifully clear uh, to both of us that, you know, that there's, there's, there was complete honesty, transparency, that I do feel this way sometimes. And, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing is, uh, unlike me, my wife has um, always been a big city girl. Um, and I think culturally, perhaps maybe she was a lot more open-minded about these things than I was. This is not to say that people in small town are necessarily narrow-minded. It's just that my experience has been that. Uh, or that everybody living in a big city is very broad-minded. That's not true either. But in my experience, you know, I felt like she was a lot more ready, prepared to accept me as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it wasn't like one big grand conversation. I think there is really no uh, alternative to just being brutally honest. You know, it's, it's like quitting smoking. You can't plan and say... 
okay first i'll go down from 10 cigarettes to 3 then to 1 and like <laughs> you know it, it, it doesn't work like that um i mean i used to be a smoker and i just decided to you know quit out of the blue and that's that's how it's been for the last 13 14 years that i haven't smoked and i i took some of that philosophy i think in my own life as well that you know it, this is not something that you can sort of you know um spin in your head and find the right wordings and then you know sit the person down and say hey look i have this. no it's you know it, i i think intuitively i learned that you know for, if i had for instance faulty vision or if i had um, i don't know a problem with my liver um would i sort of have to struggle so much to communicate this um maybe i would but then i thought you know this is something that just has to be put out there and then you know we don't want to linger on it um and i think this is something that in my life i have for the last so many years now i've used this as sort of a litmus test for all my relationship how do they respond to this revelation uh when i tell them and um i accept that it is not easy for everybody to to sort of uh, immediately uh say all right oh that's great and you know it, it's all right let's go let's go out and have a drink people don't respond like that um but you know you give them some time and space and if they come back and if they're still the same with you then you know that you know these are these are the relationships that you will have for your life mm-hmm. tell me tanmay what about the taboo the taboos that we go through when we are discussing about mental illness um personally have you gone through taboos and do you think the taboos are different and of course they are when it comes to the status of society yeah absolutely i think the fact that i'm sitting here today and having a chat with you on my mac speaking in english all of this reeks of a certain privilege right i mean um so whatever i am able to um put out there in terms of my experience i know that it will not this is not the story of you know even 1% of indians perhaps um, yes. who experiences very different but having said that thing about privilege I do feel I don't want to I mean it's a slightly cringe worthy expression to say that this is the great leveler but it it really is in a sense because it does not discriminate between rich poor famous uh, unknown it you know when when your mind turns against you it doesn't help to be born in a you know a doctor's family or to be or you know of course it is a disadvantage particular disadvantage if you're born in a let's say um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know uh, the 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 house of let's say a daily wage earner of course yeah. that, that's a an added uh, injury but i i'm not sure if you're born in a particular um, uh, you know how uh, family or household or a particular class the initial blow is going to be the same the support that you receive is going to be different and yes. that makes all the difference but you know if you read for instance um, shahin bhat's book um yes. his sister's book i mean i could relate to every single line in that book and here's the here's a girl who could have availed the best medical treatment uh you know but even she went on suffering alone in silence for so many years so yes. so i think taboo exists the resistance exists across uh social classes it's just that because of our class privilege we are able to get better support and that helps us maybe transcend these conditions better that of course makes a huge difference um yes um, experience however of your mind turning against yourself i don't know whether you know um the initial blow of it um it depends on uh, these external labels i think that is 
going to be as cruel no matter what background you're from. Sure. And incidentally, Shaheen has also been on our podcast a couple of episodes back. So. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, nice. Yeah, so you can check that out as well. But just extending this conversation, uh, Tanmil, as not just a person who is fighting, uh, you know, depression, as also a correspondent writing about uh, mental illness, do we have anything regulated when it comes to the lower or as you said the daily wage earners uh, mental illnesses what do you think the government or the system is tackling it oh yeah it's not on the agenda mental health has never been on the agenda of i think and that's not that's not particular to india um you know across the world mental health is only just beginning to and i think because of the this pandemic it has gotten like a huge impetus now with a lot of governments around the world taking special steps just to treat just to deal with the mental health crisis that is quietly brewing in the background um but it has never been i mean health in itself in india when was health ever a political subject um or uh, an election issue it was only when ayushman bharat happened that some noise was made around health you know if you look at our budgets for instance every uh, year the mental health allocation goes keeps going down it is a pathetic amount right now i have written about that extensively um yes. you know and so what is well relatively well known is that you know we don't have a lot of trained professionals uh mm-hmm. to deal with the huge number of people who require help in our country but that is the surface reality beyond that also there are so many problems um and i think um, the biggest problem is that you know we have treated mental health in a silo we think that it is just another health condition like a like the flu but it is not uh, you know like all public health problems mental health is deeply deeply intersectional everything plays a role your caste identity your gender identity your economic background your educational background your family your biology your bi- biochemistry everything it is it sits at flush at the intersection of all these different forces so it is you know you cannot deal with mental health uh peace meal you have to fix all these structures in society um you know wherever there is inequality wherever there is injustice there is going to, that's going to be a breeding ground for mental health problems mm. so for the government to look at mental health would re- it's not like they have to suddenly start creating a separate agenda for mental health i think that's maybe that may be one of the reasons why there has been like um, an inertia that maybe people think that oh now we have to create this new thing but that's not that's not required maybe what is required is you all we already have systems and structures in place to look after all these different things and they don't function well which is why you know mental health gets impacted of the average indian citizen so if all of these things if our general healthcare system works well if our uh, economy is strong if we have jobs if we are able to curb domestic abuse um you know if we are able to treat people with different sexual orientations with respect and create opportunities for them um then you will see automatically the mental health landscape becomes better right mm, uh, absolutely as, you know, as long as we think of mental health all oh, right we need to create more doctors we need to create more nurses we need to put more medicines in the hands of people then it will appear suddenly like all right we have to create a separate system to deal with this and therefore this is not priority but the, the you just need to look at it differently you just need to change your lens and i must make mention here of something that something very remarkable that happened before the general elections last general elections which is the bridge the care gap campaign um 
that was started by the Mariwala Health Initiative. Yes, yeah. You know, and a lot of these people now, my friends, mentors in this field, and they managed to get two uh, national uh, political parties to include mental health in their poll manifestos, which was historic. Um, and so I very, very firmly believe that until, uh, unless mental health becomes a political issue, a vote issue, um, it's very difficult to change things on the ground. Okay, so we have a we 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 have we can't even imagine what kind of time it's going to take. But um, just tell me about the caregiving aspect because I'm also a caregiver. In terms of you seeing your caregiver, your wife um, at the moment, how important and what kind of a role she plays in your life at this moment? Ah, uh, gosh, I I. I I don't even know where to begin. You know, I mean, it's, she's the one person with whom I can be just completely myself without any need for artifice or putting on appearances or whatever. Mm-hmm. It also it helps that you know she, she was going through a similar situation a few years ago, and mm-hmm. then I played this role, and so I have an intuitive we have an intuitive understanding. of each other's needs and uh, in my mind the caregiver is such a criminally neglected element in the mental health mm. conversation i feel like we like just we cannot when we cannot, talk about stakeholders in the mental health system, system. often this often oh yeah we need to talk about caregivers also it's sort of really need to talk about them but my journey in the past at least since i've been married to my wife since i've known my wife in the past 8 9 years yeah you know i my i owe my existence i owe my survival to my wife let me just say that, mm-hmm. that. and then of course now i have i have a 2 year old son who's yes who plays his own role in keeping me uh, keeping my feet on the ground i think and in case of anything that uh, you know needs a coping uh, mechanism when it comes to anything maybe an episode that you're going through how does she handle does she have a system in place can she go somewhere yeah that's a very good question um and i mean again disclaimer i'm answering a lot of questions on her behalf i don't know how fair <laughs> that is um but um, yeah maybe you should have a chat with her but <laughs> yes uh, yeah. i i think uh, you know how she how she copes with how she helps me deal with that situation is very simple she just neither does she blow it up uh, into a huge thing nor she has this ethereal sense of calm and composure i think um because what happens is when you when you are going through an episode like that if the people around you also start freaking out you know it really can be a very disempowering feeling um but if people around you give you a sense of being in control like they're there and you know things are going to be all right um you know so she just quietly sits with me asks me if i need anything and you know the the crucial thing about caregiving you're a caregiver so i'm sure you know this already is that it's the little things that help it's not you don't you, you know nobody can dig you out of the dumps when you're going through a, a phase but it's the little things it's taking away the small chores you know helping with the shopping helping with the sort of you know the the groceries and washing the dishes and doing that, those are the small things having been a caregiver myself uh, i know that these small everyday acts they just break your back when you are depressed um you just don't mm. feel like doing any of that and somebody comes and helps you with these little things um you know that is such a huge help this is not talked about often when you talk about caregiving maybe a lot of emotional support is what we talk about 
but it's also the day to day nitty gritty of sort of washing your clothes and you know giving you a bath maybe when you are just not able to walk to the bathroom you know um insisting that you take a bath when you for 5 days you are just lolling about in you know in your dirty clothes those are the small little things where somebody just comes quietly firmly takes control and says trust me i'm there i'm never going to go away you know um that aspect of caregiving that calm quiet unspoken confidence that this person is going to be there no matter what um and you know i can just if i don't feel like getting up and i just want to have 10 cups of tea today i can just tell her and she will make it for me you know lovely it is very 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 unfair to your family to your caregivers because if they have to go through a prolonged phase like that we keep talking about and you know in my in my particular case what helps i guess everybody in my life a little bit is because is that i'm so public with my condition right so yeah i would assume that they don't feel like they are the only outlet i have so you know when i decided to turn my career completely upside down and i i mean i've been a business journalist for all my life pretty much all my life and then i sort of jumped to writing about mental health out of the blue um and before that i have been tweeting i have been writing on linkedin i have been public i've spoken to my employers about my condition so i think that takes a little bit of the pressure off their backs maybe that you know i am they are not the only vent that i have um mm-hmm. having said that of course nobody can play the role that that they that my wife for instance plays in my life mm-hmm. speaking about uh, talking to your employer about it we had an episode where we had uh, our guests talking about how they were even skeptical talking to their employers about their condition one of them was sagged what is according to you is the situation in the space of corporates and mental health are we are we heading anywhere are corporates yeah. concerned about mental health i think people like us we've kind of taken the charge now we've kind of decided that we are no longer going to sit in silence and so you know employers bosses have no option but to sort of acknowledge that this is a problem and they have to do something about it um when i did this when i sort of you know i i joined india's um sort of one of india's largest media companies and i signed on there uh in the hr form i wrote there you know you have that mandatory field where you have to disclose your medical condition right and nobody writes mm-hmm. anything there um but i wrote an elaborate history of my condition i wrote that i am on medication um and and it was so liberating i mean again big disclaimer i am a huge votary of you know if you don't want to talk about it it's completely cool it's your call nobody should force you or you shouldn't glamorize talking about your mental health condition because everybody has a different story so i always yes. encourage people to take their own call however for me it was very very because i felt like you know i am a journalist it's a public facing role to an extent yeah. um, and you know how our days are it, it can get very erratic they're long taxing stressful days and i was super afraid that one day i'm just going to have a meltdown in office or something and then people will ask me questions and then i'll have to lie about it and i thought lying is a lot more difficult than than just telling the truth um so i told them and of course and of course they were accepting and they were oh yes yes they cool were with it. a lot of people i mean i think the decision makers at that time they just did not even talk about it it was like it, it was like you said this we heard you it's okay we will never mention it again um awesome. and that was very good of course everybody did not react the same way um there were people in the team i know there was there were senior superiors who might have sort of 
been uncomfortable with this um and uh, but i think coming back to the, the, the you know the larger situation in india i am very hopeful i think the uh, i think the genie is i mean i wrote about this a, a couple of weeks ago that especially after this um, pandemic is over and this you know what is happening right now with people working from home for an indefinite period of time is that you know that boundary between personal space and workspace has completely disappeared and so people now no longer feel the need to put on a face wear a mask and go to office right they are who they are and this is not going to suddenly you know people are not going to suddenly go back to being stiff and unnatural when they go back to office again they are going to talk about you know these things they're going to demand attention they're going to demand that you know companies create specific practices policies to support people with with the uh, various conditions um so i am extremely gung ho that this is an inflection point uh, corporate india is corporates around the world employees around the world have no option but to start paying serious attention to this and right now what people are going through covid 19 and it's such a it's a very uh, it's a situation which is unpredictable you don't know what's going to happen there is panicking there is stress as a correspondent what do you think what all is going to come out of this the pandora's box yeah uh-huh. <laughs> so we are uh, a few of us dr somit bathare who's the director of the yeah. committee on law and policy a uh, couple of our, you know a couple of us from the ecosystem uh, nelson who runs the suicide prevention foundation we we are at, right now we are working informally as a group um we are very worried about the the suicides that are happening uh yes. these are preventable deaths and people are just dying because they fear the stigma you know they they are just they have just been manhandled by the cops uh out of shame or taboo or alcohol uh, you know withdrawal uh we have seen those cases happen in kerala um, it's it's really frightening and i think the full impact will be felt what, see right now there is sort of like a um, you know everybody is working single mindedly towards one goal which is to get out of this crisis um, once this crisis lifts and once the economic toll becomes clearer once all those people who have lost their jobs all those people who you know whose livelihoods have been destroyed um you know once they realize that they are left to their own devices i shudder to think what is going to happen i'm just i'm extremely extremely worried i think um and so that's that's the downside the upside i already told you i think another thing that i i mean again using the word upside in a context like this feels very wrong but i think we have to also look at you know what can we take out of this um so i think one important thing that is happening right now is you know this obsession that people have with productivity you know yeah um yeah. like even in the f- uh, the first few days of this crisis people were like yeah. oh you know now maybe you can write that novel that you've always wanted to write you know and i was like we uh, for god sake we're going through a global emergency you know this is not the time to be productive you are allowed to be in your pajamas and do nothing you know <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> so i feel like i feel like uh, that unhealthy obsession with productivity um and in fact you know to tie it up with your previous question about employers yeah wherever wherever employers do care about mental health you know they have all these wellness groups and whatever free yoga meditation apps etc etc um it is done because uh, consultants management consultants have told them this is good for your employees productivity you do this their productivity will increase 
Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't do this, you know, it's a multi-trillion dollar problem. People's productivity will drop. They will not be efficient at work. So I have been shouting from the rooftop for a while now through my work at The Correspondent and otherwise when I speak publicly. I, yeah. I keep telling people that unless you look at hum- uh, mental health from a human rights lens, you don't create mental health friendly structures because it is going to help people's productivity go up. Because it is this obsession with productivity as a culture, the society that has gotten us to this point in the first place. You know, that this mm-hmm. burnout, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. chronically stressed and killing themselves and just being, you know, feeling like, you know, uh, these sort of Monday blues that we make fun of, right? This whole culture, we are obsessed with productivity. That's what has brought us. And now to, again, use productivity as the reason why you should support uh, somebody's mental health to me sounds absolutely obscene. So I think this productivity obsession might wane a little bit uh, also after this uh, crisis. Um, And I think people will just start being a lot more assertive about their rights. Um, That's my big sort of hope, I think. What would we do if if it becomes a pandemic Mental illness. The me- the mental illness crisis has been brewing, you know, quietly in the background for decades, right? For centuries. It's only now that with celebrities coming and talking about it that it has become mm. quote unquote cool to talk about it. But there were people suffering quietly for centuries. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, what will we do? I think we don't have the infrastructure to handle it, just like we didn't have for COVID. So, to me, the most powerful um, tool that we have to fight this in India, in particular, is mm. the community. The community. The com- mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you like I said, if you have to create enough doctors and nurses to take care of this large population that needs help, this is going to take us fifty years. You know, um, what is required is to empower people at the grassroots, people in villages, people in uh, RWAs in your families empower them with the basics empower them with sort of you know uh, the basic toolkit required to help each other and again I must say there's this project that you know the listeners I implore them to look it up on Google it's a project called Atmiyata. it is it is it runs you know in Gujarat and it is beautiful incidentally they're also on the podcast yeah <laughs> yeah fabulous I mean I went and visited these villages in Gujarat Oh, and lovely, my huh? mind was blown how these school dropouts, you know, illiterate people, conventionally people that you look down upon, um, mm. low caste people, marginalized people, uh, you know, people who have difficulty in assimilating with society, how amazingly they have been sort of, you know, um, uh, empowered by these um, volunteers and, you know, mental health champions. Um, and they're helping each other, they're preventing things from escalating so much that you have to go to a doctor. But if you do need to go to a doctor, they are the ones that, you know, that are sort of handholding them and taking you to the nearest district health center or village uh, sort of primary health center. And so community empowerment is key. I mean, we have, you know, we are a billion plus people. And if each one of us uh, sort of is sort of empowered, educated uh, in the basics of mental health, uh, you know, and suicide prevention, I think we do not require a massive infrastructure to deal with at least the basics. You know, where we need the government's attention, the state's attention urgently, is to just make sure that all the systems that already exist work well. You know, if if all the systems that already exist work well, we don't have to create a big massive infrastructure just for mental health. Because this, this fallacy has to end, that mental health is a separate thing. It is not. 
um it is the outcome of all of these different things and if the government can just fix basic healthcare and basic education basic human rights you know um if the judiciary does its job if the legislative arm does its job the executive arm does its job if the media does its job uh we will already start feeling a lot better i think as a species um you know and then whoever still requires biomedical help whoever still requires clinical help sure we need to build up and ramp up that infrastructure um but the crying urgent need is really to empower the community and to make sure that these existing structures and systems that breed inequality that breed injustice that breed corruption that breed this feeling of disempowerment of citizens if we are able to fix all of these things i think we are going to be a lot more i think i'm again loath to use the word happy because it means very you know vague things but i think we are just going we're going to feel a lot better i think as people mm-hmm. in fact the atmita model when we were talking about in the podcast i had specifically asked us to costume but i'm sure you missed call yeah, you met costume yes, and yes. um uh, also rajvi uh, from marivala health that can we have that in the urban cities which i think they are thinking about right uh, hopefully couple of things uh, tanmay that you would recommend uh, to keep ourselves sane in today's times Yeah I would say the the most important thing is to I think if you can delete WhatsApp from your phones um <laughs> yes. I think that's just I think I think that's I mean unfortunately because of um the line of work that one is in one is not able to do yeah. that yeah. but if you can do it it will be a huge favor uh, to yourself just delete it um the other thing I think is okay this is this is something that I have that I have personally experienced and I think a lot of people experience a lot of people who who are um, you know going through um, uh, some kind of a psychological crisis right now yeah. they also there there is also tremendous guilt because you know we always keep thinking oh but there are so many people out there who are worse off than us you know who are suffering in much worse conditions and it is great it is a sign of your humanity if you are able to think like that and of course all of us you know absolutely must think like that hey but that does not delegitimize your suffering you know uh, mm. the fact that there are hungry people out there does not take anything away from how shitty you are feeling right now you should do whatever you can to support those people on the streets but please 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 don't curb your frustration your anxiety your depression or feeling you know sad or bad or low or whatever it is that you are feeling just don't stop yourself from bringing this up with whoever you can just because you feel like oh my god how can i even do that i'm so privileged i what do i have to complain about if that is genuinely how you feel great mm-hmm. however if you mm-hmm. feel you know that you are absolutely feeling crushed and despondent please don't feel guilty about it i think you know if all of us are able to give ourselves and each other the permission to just feel right now you know yeah and just yeah. talk and don't feel guilty this is absolutely normal we are going through something that is turning everything upside down and if if we don't feel you know uh, bouts of insanity now then when will we feel like that so you know we are allowed we are permitted i tweeted about this because a lot of my um you know in my inner circle friends etc we all feel like you know we have all the privilege in the world what right do we have to complain and why i understand the you know ideologically i understand that and i respect that and i feel the same way i feel like that should not stop you from legitimizing from validating your own uh fears and and uh, anxieties so i think that those are the two things that's a deep whatsapp 
allow yourself the permission to creep creep wine then once in a while <laughs> yes. and do whatever yes. you can to help the people out there but don't confuse their pain don't say that their pain makes your pain any less valid yes absolutely thank you so much tanmay that was a great conversation and uh, i hope our listeners enjoy the food for thought that you have left thank you so much suchita it was a great pleasure So I would suggest do not use the word depression so lightly it is not just not being able to get out of bed or having a mood swing it is much deeper but you should be able to differentiate between actual depression which is clinical depression and something that you might just feel during these times and in case you wish to connect to Tanmoy you can find him on Twitter Tanmoy Goswami And in case you wish to connect to me, you can of course find me on my Twitter handle, Metaphysical Lab, EP Log Media. And of course, you can subscribe to us on all the podcasting platforms from Apple to Spotify to Geo Savan to Ghana to Hubhopper. It's all in the description. So guys, stay safe, stay positive. I'm going to leave you with this quote. Look for something positive in each day. Even if some days you have to look a little harder.